following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, September 30th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Let me extend my welcome as well. My name is Robert, and one of the pastors here. And if you've been a guest the last couple of weeks, I promise I really am here. I've been gone for the last couple of weeks, and um, it's good to be back. My kids always ask me when I go away and travel, bring us back something. I don't think they expected me to bring back the flu. Um, but that's exactly what happened. After two and a half weeks of travel, lots of airplanes and lots of different places, my body finally gave in. And, and so they weren't pleased with that gift. But all is better now. So um, Philippians chapter 1, let's jump in. This is what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to read for us, and then we'll see what God has for us in his word this morning. So Philippians chapter 1, let's start in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. In that, I rejoice. If you were with us when we began this series, you may remember that we talked about the fact that many scholars, many commentators often call the book of Philippians Paul's referendum on gospel joy. Short letter, short book, four chapters, 108 verses, 17 times Paul talks about joy or talks about rejoicing, responding, reacting out of a joy. In this, Paul says, I rejoice. Joy is essential to the Christian life. Joy is essential to the Christian life. Now listen with me for just a minute. A, a big picture summary of what the Bible has to say about this joy as we go to see how the Apostle Paul in these circumstances can say that in this, all that he was experiencing in it, he was able to rejoice. It can be said that the entirety of the gospel message itself from beginning to end is simply good news of great joy. You might remember in Luke chapter 2, the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. It's fair to say that becoming a Christian is finding a joy that makes you willing to forsake everything else. Jesus said in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. But then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. 
throughout the Bible as God continues to disclose to us in his word, his nature, his character, his essence. We find over and over again God helping us to see that he himself is our joy. The psalmist says in Psalm 43, I will go to the altar of God, to God who is my exceeding joy. Jesus' aim in all that he taught was the joy of his people. John 15, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Joy is what God fills us with when we trust in Christ. Paul told the church in Rome, May the God of hope fill you with all joy in believing. Joy is the fruit of God's Spirit within us. Paul reminds the church in Galatians, The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. Joy is the aim of everything that the apostles did and all that they wrote. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, It's not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Gospel joy, joy rooted in God himself, is a joy that outweighs every other earthly joy. The psalmist said in Psalm 4, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. In John chapter 16, Jesus reminds us that if our joy is indeed rooted in God, it is a joy that can never be taken away from us. Jesus said, you may have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. The challenge when we talk about joy, when we look at, at, at scriptures like that, even when you read or when you hear someone talk about this wide-ranging scope of joy that God created us for and that God intends for us to live in, the, cha the challenge and the question that we always wrestle with is, do I really believe it to be true? Do I really believe this to be true? Or, if you're honest with yourself, when you hear scriptures like that read, when you hear about this joy, are you nodding your head but in your mind coming up with a list of exceptions to the rule? I remember very vividly telling God, in case I thought he had forgotten, that I had been a faithful teacher of the word. At least I felt like I was being a faithful teacher of his word, that I had worked for a church and not taken a salary for it, that I was doing all that I could to see people come to faith in his son and reminding him of all these things, I had to ask him, why then were you taking our son from us? Why was our son dying? So there's exceptions to some of these rules. In my travels the last couple of weeks, I had a chance to hear of a pastor and his family in Central Asia. God had been using him to see an underground church established, to see other pastors and their families equipped and, and trained in the gospel. And then out of nowhere, with no warning, with no explanation, with nothing that they saw coming, he was arrested and he was put in prison. He was separated from his wife and from his kids and from his church. And I was reminded as I thought about these things and considered Paul's situation and Paul's words in this letter that our commitment to rejoice in God's goodness 
is always tested when we go through trials and suffering. Many times we, we fear actually saying and expressing what it is our minds are thinking and what it is our hearts might be feeling. It's why you love the Psalms when you begin to spend any amount of time in them. You love Psalms like Psalm 73 where the psalmist says, everywhere I look, the wicked abound. I love you, I'm faithful to you, you're my God. Why am I experiencing so much trouble? Why am I suffering? They wear pride around their necks like a necklace. And everything they do seems to work out, but they don't seem to be suffering the same way we are. When we live with this perspective, when, when this is the way that we narrate the experiences and the difficulties and the trials in our lives, that same psalmist in Psalm 73 he said, my soul became embittered, and I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. No joy, no rejoicing, just frustration, bitterness, leading to an ineffectiveness. Friends, when we find ourselves in this particular place, when we find ourselves recognizing those same feelings and those same thoughts, something has to change. See, this is the very place that Paul knew this church was on the edge of going to. Paul knew that they were on the edge of being overwhelmed by sorrow, of looking to God like the psalmist and say, wait a minute, why in the world is this the thing that's happening to us? Why is this the thing that's happening to Paul? Why are all these other people abounding? Why is this empire continuing to flourish? What in the world is going on? Paul knew where they were and the perspective that they were living with. Why? Because he was in prison. I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me, he knows they're on the edge of sorrow and despair because of what has happened to Paul. Now, quite literally, Paul was in prison. He was writing this letter from prison, most likely in Rome. And so there was a very real concern for his well-being because of the affection that they had for him and the affection that he had for them. They would be concerned about him and his well-being. So they sent Epaphroditus, their pastor, to Paul to take care of his needs. And Paul has sent Epaphroditus back to them now, and he brought this letter. So they're concerned about Paul. But, but if you were to really look at this and, and understand it, Paul very well could be encapsulating in this statement everything that's happened to him in service to the Lord. Take some time in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and, and read it this week. Paul writes in shorthand in Philippians what's happened to me, but he, he details it. In 2 Corinthians 11, countless beatings, far more imprisonments, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day adrift at sea. I mean, read it like a human for just a moment like we talk about around here. When you even read about Paul suffering even these lashings for proclaiming the gospel, you got to understand that these lashings that he was receiving, 40 less one, 39 of them, 
were administered on his back with something that was very similar to what you would imagine like a cat of nine tails to be, a whip with many ends on it. And every single one of those ends would have had a piece of pottery or stone or bone or glass affixed to it so that as they whipped the person who was suffering these lashings, these things would set into their skin and into their muscle and pull it back out. Five times Paul's received 39 of those beaten with rods on top of that. Read it like a human. In his entire ministry, the Apostle Paul has probably never had the space for his back to ever even heal. Imprisonments and in shipwreck and in traveling, in people's homes and in cells and wherever he was, he probably could never even lay down comfortably because of all that had been administered to him for preaching the gospel. I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me Now he's in prison, and from their perspective, from what they could see, Paul being in prison is the worst thing that could have ever happened. They love him. They don't want him to suffer, but apart from that, this is Paul. This is the great evangelist. This is the great church planter. This is the apostle to the Gentiles. This is Paul. Did God just turn his head for a minute? Did God just glance over at something else while this was happening and miss it? Friends, when you and I begin to feel like we're going through different circumstances and situations and maybe God just checked out for a minute. Maybe he just turned his head. Maybe he hasn't been able to notice what's actually going on. When we feel like we're in those situations, we have a decision to make. Will we trust our own perspective or will we trust that God looks at things from a different perspective and that from his perspective and in his goodness, he is the one who never forsakes his promises? You see, here in this letter, Paul is fighting for their joy and for God's glory. And to fight for their joy Paul is going to help shift their gaze. He's going to help them change the perspective through which they are looking at these circumstances. Because here's the thing, if joy is essential to the Christian life, it means that in all things, joy must be possible. And Paul wants to help them see that the sure foundation of our joy is not the goodness of our day. It's not found in the goodness of what we are experiencing. The sure foundation for our joy is found in the goodness of our God. Listen to what he has to say. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's as though Paul's saying, I know how things look. I know how you must be feeling. I am well aware of what other people are saying about me and about what's happening, but here's what I need you to know. Here's what I want you to know. Regardless of how things look from our perspective, I'm rejoicing. Regardless of of how things look and what we see and what you're hearing, I am responding to it all out of joy. I am living out of joy. Why? Because in the goodness of God, he's keeping his promises. 
Specifically, even now, the gospel is advancing through this. It's as though he's writing to these people that he loves and he's saying, friends, my joy, it's not grounded in the circumstances of my day. It's it's grounded in the goodness of my God and King. You've got to lift up your eyes. You need a new perspective. Paul knew something to be true and he had taught it to this very church at some point along the way. He knew what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14 was certain. Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom, this good news of the kingdom of God, of my reign and of my rule, this good news of God's grace through me, (laughs) this good news of the kingdom of God will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Paul knew in God's goodness he was going to be faithful to his promise. And knowing the goodness of God and being able to taste and see that the Lord really is indeed good, Paul was able to have a different perspective on what he was enduring. And listen to what he says. What's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. You see, when Paul was in prison in Rome when he was writing this letter, he wasn't chained to a wall. He wasn't chained to a post. Paul was literally chained 24 hours a day, seven days a week to a member of the royal guard, the Praetorian Guard. Historians say the Praetorian Guard was comprised of between 8,000 and 9,000 special elite guardsmen who had a particular role with the Roman emperor. 24 hours a day, shift after shift, man after man, Paul was chained to one of these soldiers. Everywhere he went, one of these soldiers was with him. And all day long, whoever was with Paul would hear the good news of God's kingdom from him. All day long, 24 hours a day, man after man, shift after shift, Paul would tell them and help them to see that just like him, they too were born in sin and guilty of treason against the real king. Paul would teach them about King Jesus and his reign and his kingdom and his rule. He would help them to see and he would explain it to them and he would talk to them and he would have conversation with them and he would proclaim to them that there was no way in themselves through whatever sacrifices they were making, whatever rituals they were performing, whatever it was that they were believing, there was no way in themselves that they could pay to God the debt that they owed him because of their sin. That everything that they were doing at best was an effort at trying to justify themselves. Paul would tell them every single day that there was indeed good news. For those who saw their sin in light of God's holiness and justice, that with this God, our only hope is not in ourselves, but in someone else's righteousness being given to us. And Paul would have constantly been telling them and teaching them and talking to them about Jesus, about his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection. And day after day, Paul would have been urging them to repent. You see, friends, Paul could rejoice. Because from this eternal perspective, he understood that his suffering gave him strategic opportunities for the gospel. And the same is true for you and I. John, the guy I was telling you about in Central Asia, when he was arrested and put in prison... He began to go to the little resource area that was in that prison 
And he quickly understood and realized that all of the resources that were available to all the prisoners were Islamic. And so every day to keep his mind sharp and to keep his heart centered, he began to write articles while he was there about how to live different aspects of life through the lens of the Christian faith. Articles about being a, a man, articles about being a husband, articles about being a, a father, articles about how we relate to each other, things that he had been taught by those that had discipled him and those that had trained him. Just for his own good, he began to write these articles. And one day he was brought into the office of what we would call the warden. And on the table, on the desk of the warden, were all these articles that John had written. And the warden asked him, did you write these? And he said, yes. And he said, where did you learn all of this? He began to explain to the warden that this was how he understood people were to live in light of who the one true God was and who he made us to be. And I heard this story from his wife on a recorded secure line, a testimony that she was telling. And she said in her own words, at that moment, there was a stunned silence between them that lasted for like 30 seconds. And at the end of that silence, John was sitting there not knowing if he was going to live for another hour based on this. And that warden looked at him and said, would you be willing to teach this to the men of the prison every single week? From that day on, every single week, John taught the principles of the Christian faith and how it changed their lives and their understanding of who they were to 1,200 men in prison in Central Asia. And in that recording, these are the words of his wife. We often pray for deliverance. And when we do it, we miss what God is really doing. Right now, we, herself and her kids, who are without their husband and their father, Right now, we are rejoicing, knowing that God will release John when he's done with him where he is. Friends, we can rejoice when from the perspective of God's goodness, we understand that even in the hardest things, God often gives us strategic opportunities for the gospel to advance. But not just that, even when that happens, something else happens and it causes the apostle to rejoice even more. Listen to what he says. Paul can rejoice because when he sees the gospel advance, even as he's seen it advance through this praetorian guard and those that they interact with, through his sufferings and the way he's responding to them, God is emboldening the church in their witness. Look at verse 14. Paul said, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, they're not confident because Paul's in prison. They're confident because of the way that Paul is responding to his imprisonment. They're confident because Paul is living out in this moment a perspective that comes through the goodness of God, and he's responding to his trials and his suffering in a way that is emboldening the church to bear witness much more boldly and to speak the word without fear. Isn't that what we want? I mean, honestly, ask yourself, isn't that what you want? Don't you want to be much more bold to speak the word without fear? And even if it's just a moment, even if it's just a sliver, even if it's just a, a spark, don't you feel a bit more confident and a bit more fearless to speak the word of God's grace even when you hear stories like John's? 
when you see through someone else's life that Jesus is indeed worth it all, doesn't it just embolden you? Doesn't it just push back against that fear? When you see someone else in a different circumstance responding through this perspective to their trials and to their sufferings, doesn't it help you see that really and truly Jesus is indeed worth it? Friends, without this, you and I can become so stifled and and dulled by the comforts of our own culture. I mean, if we're honest, in in John's situation and in the situation his family was in, if we found ourselves there, if we're really honest with ourselves, we would be more apt to say, shh, shh, hush up. Quit saying those things. Quit doing those things. It'll screw it up for the rest of us. Friends, you and I need to be reminded that Jesus is worth it all and that there is a promise to come that outstrips any promise our world can make us. At best right now, in 2018 in Richmond, Virginia, you and I might experience the sting of condescension from other people. But in the majority of the world, the stakes are much higher. It's estimated that nearly 200 million Christians Brothers and sisters, fellow partakers of grace with us, face persecution for their faith in Jesus on a daily basis. Something far greater than the sting of the condescension of the person in the office next to you. When we hear their stories, because of the unique bond of affection that God creates between His people, what we saw in the first part of this letter, When we hear their stories, God does something. God drives us to a desire to pray for them the way the Apostle Paul was praying for this church. But at the same time, their stories shout to us of a confidence in the Lord and it emboldens our witness. It emboldens us to do things without which we may not have the courage to do. Like sit down and look at our lives and look at our priorities and look at our values and wonder what are the things that are shaping the decisions that I'm making. How are these decisions and these priorities that shape us communicating to a watching world that we have tasted and seen that he is indeed good? How are our priorities and our values that are shaping the decisions we make in life and how we live our lives as Christians and as families and as a church, how are they communicating that we believe that God has put more joy in our heart than when our portfolios abound, than when our kids make us look good, than when our houses and our lives are Pinterest perfect? that he's put more joy in us than anything else. Paul can be in chains and rejoice, not because he's a masochist, not because he likes pain. He can be in chains and rejoice, not because his day is going well. It's not because of the goodness of his circumstance. He can be in chains and rejoice because of the perspective that he has on them shaped by the goodness of his God. Like he told the church in Corinth, he can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Yes, there's sorrow. Yes, the lashes were real. Yes, they hurt. Yes, the betrayal hurts. Yes, the pain is real. I can be sorrowful, yet I can always be rejoicing 
because this joy is grounded in the goodness of God. And it can't be taken away from me. And God has promised in his goodness to work through all of these things for my good and for his glory. See, Paul understands that it's in these moments that we actually get to taste the the weightiness of the joy that God has created us for, the joy that God has given us in himself. Everything else is like cotton candy, fluffy and soft, instantaneous, and then gone. But it's in these moments in particular that God gives us the gift of being able to taste the substance and the weight and the eternality of this joy. It's not thin and airy. It's rooted in the fullness of who he is. But here's the thing. It wasn't just the Roman government that was causing Paul pain. Paul was suffering at the hands of his fellow proclaimers of the gospel. I mean, honestly, if you even hear of Paul's imprisonment, you hear of Paul's sufferings physically, you may, you may think, well, I can endure some things. and I don't know that I would lose my joy in that, but if there was a cause for us to let go of our joy, suffering at the hands of those that we've committed ourselves to and are supposed to love us, that might be one of the greatest causes for a loss of joy that we could imagine. And listen to what he said. Look at verse 15. There are those that are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, while others are doing it from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now, now understand this. Paul's not talking about heretics. Paul's not talking like he was in the letter we, we read about to the, to the church in Galatia where he was talking about those who were coming in and preaching an entirely different gospel, leading the church astray on the edge of shipwrecking their faith. No, these were people that were preaching the real Jesus and the real gospel. But they were preaching it from a position of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition. And how they were preaching and in what they were saying In some way and in some measure, they were trying to afflict Paul, stick it to Paul while he was in prison. But here's the thing. Paul doesn't tell us why they were jealous. Paul doesn't dive into motive at all. There's a tremendous grace in Paul's silence here. Of of course he was hurt by what they were saying. Of course there was sorrow in his heart because of what was happening. But he doesn't dwell on it. He doesn't gossip about them to this church. He doesn't say something to damage their reputation in the eyes of this church. There's no naming and shaming going on from Paul in this situation. Later in chapter 3, Paul's going to say about himself, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Paul knew that he was still a work in progress. There were those Paul knew, like he said in verse 16, that knew him and loved him. And there were others that knew him and worked with him and didn't love him. Paul knew himself. Because of this, he's not crying that these were stifling his effectiveness or squashing his potential. He could have easily argued about being kept from doing the very thing he felt called by God to do. He could have said, here's my point, here's my agenda, here's what God said, here's how it's supposed to be done. He told me to go do this, and now I'm not able to do it. He wasn't saying that at all. Through the lens of God's goodness, 
and his faithfulness to his word, Paul said they're preaching the real Jesus. I may not like why. I may not even like how. But I do know that God has put his treasure in clay pots with cracks all over it, just like me. And God uses them for his glory. So here's what I want you to know. That's what he said. Here's what I want you to know. In every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. One writer said, differences of personal like and dislike must ever remain in the church. Different stages of sanctification must ever mark individual Christians and groups of Christians on this side of glory. What he just said on this side of glory is that you're going to think it should be done one way and you're going to think it should be done another way. On this side of glory, you're going to say worship should look like this and you're going to say worship should look like this. On this side of glory, you think discipleship should be done this way and you think it should be done this way. On this side of glory, we're at this level of maturation and you're at this level of maturation. On this side of glory, God has put us together and it's going to have to stay this way. And he said these things must be accepted. And as far as unity is concerned, they have to be set on the side. There is but one essential. In its broadest statement, it's agreement in the truth. In its inner essence, it's agreement as to what constitutes the saving message or the gospel, what we tell the world about Jesus. Lacking this, we can look for vain for unity. Having it, we have the one thing on which Paul here insists and which the remaining single point of insistence throughout the New Testament teaching on the church is. Is the Jesus of the Bible being proclaimed in the church and through the people? Is he being proclaimed as God and man? Is he being proclaimed as pre-incarnate, incarnate, and exalted? Is he being proclaimed in his state of humiliation and glory? Is he being proclaimed in his office as prophet, priest, and king? Is he being offered as the only Savior, the one name by which all must be saved, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, so that there's no need for the silliness of purgatory and praying saints? This writer is in a Catholic country. Is Jesus being proclaimed as all-sufficient? If so, in light of the various disagreements, the various expectations, the various preferences, the various likes, the various levels of maturation and sanctification, if he's being proclaimed as the real Jesus in this, I must rejoice. God is advancing his gospel through it. God is advancing his gospel through Paul in the way that he understands his circumstances and is responding to them. The gospel is advancing through Paul as he proclaims the good news to this guard and those who will listen. It's advancing through Paul in the way his witness is emboldening the church to continue to preach the gospel. It's advancing in Paul as Paul increasingly sees his circumstances through the lens of God's goodness. God is keeping his promise. He is working things through for Paul's joy, God's glory, and the good of the church. Friends, it's this perspective that allows us, as the gospel advances in us, to be able to say with Paul in whatever situation that we are in, in this I can rejoice. 
Now listen, it's not wrong to plead with God to rescue us from our circumstances. Paul will say later to the church in Corinth, three times he pleaded with God to remove from him this thorn that God had given him. All throughout the Psalms, you hear God's people pleading with God to change the circumstances that they are in. Yes and amen, but more often than not, what we need most is God's perspective on them. John's family in Central Asia, his wife, his kids, they get down on their knees together every single day and they pray to God for John's release. But in the advance of the gospel, they rejoice. A day doesn't go by in our family that we don't miss our son. We pleaded with God that God would heal him, that God would heal him in a way that, would take, that only God alone could get credit for it, so that his healing would be a testimony to God's glory. No one else could take any credit for it. And it was only by the work of God's grace that he began to help us to see that he answered that prayer. It was just in a different way. Quite honestly, I think it's fair to say that looking back over the last 11 years since he died, I'm not sure that Redemption Hill would actually exist if we had not gone through that. And in that, I can rejoice. In that, we can rejoice. Our joy won't be perfect in this life. There are going to be sorrows and angsts and anxieties. Yet even here in those things, God gives us little tastes. We get a chance to sample the sweetness of the indestructible joy that can never be taken away from us. Peter wrote to the church in his first letter and he said, Though you don't see Jesus now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that's inexpressibly wonderful and filled with glory. Friends, through the lens of the goodness of God, as God gives us his perspective on things, as the gospel advances in us and we're increasingly able to see the circumstances that we are in from an entirely new lens, we too, like Paul, can say, in this I rejoice. From our limited perspective, from the limited eyes of those who were there, as Jesus hung on the cross, beaten and shamed and dying, what looked like utter defeat and failure from God's eternal and glorious perspective only served to be the ultimate catalyst for the joy that we were created for. This morning, as, as we get the privilege to respond to God's Word together, as we prepare to respond specifically by receiving communion, I want you to do it this morning being reminded that the goodness of God is the sure foundation for your joy. That in Him, even now, wherever you are, you can indeed rejoice. He has promised to work all things together for your good and His glory. And the burden of your joy, the burden of your indestructible joy is not yours to carry. He has taken that burden on Himself 
And that, my friends, if nothing else, is worth rejoicing in. So let me pray for us, and then together we will continue to respond. Father, we thank you this morning that you, you, not something that we manufacture, not something that we can create, not something that's dependent upon our situations and our circumstances, but you, you are our joy. I know myself, I know my emotions, I know my thoughts. Lord, I pray for all of us this morning that you would do the miracle that only you can do. And we pray with David, please, Lord, return to us, restore to us the joy of our salvation. Lord, give us increasingly today, tomorrow, and the next day your perspective. Help us to see through the lens of your goodness and your faithfulness that we would be able to say with Paul, in this today and in this tomorrow, I rejoice. Not because of the goodness of the circumstance around me, but the goodness of the one in whom I trust and in whom I love and who holds me in his hand. Lord, we ask this morning that you would do that very thing in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.